a sort of a theme that runs across all these practice areas and many others, as Victor mentioned, is the idea of language access to justice, the concept that we use in the law to talk about how does the government offer justice, you know, access to justice systems, whether it's, you know, civil litigation or the criminal justice system, or simply access to basic government services as required by civil rights law to people who speak English as a first language. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language... Beth Lyon and Victor Flores offer a look into Cornell's Farmworker Legal Assistance Clinic and the different educational methods they utilize to create access to the American justice system for speakers of Spanish and indigenous languages. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we are joined by two colleagues, Professor Beth Lyon, director of Cornell's Farmworker Legal Assistance Clinic, and Victor Flores, JD candidate and Spanish instructor in our Languages Across the Curriculum initiative. We will hear more about the clinic and how we integrate language instruction into disciplinary areas. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Beth and Victor. Hello. Hello. Before we dive into the topic and talk more about the Farmworker Legal Assistance Clinic, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and any language experiences you may have? Beth, why don't you get started? Well, thanks, Angelica and Sam, very much um, for this program and for the chance to talk with you all. Um, so I was born and raised in a small town in Florida, um, but I spent about half of my childhood living in Spain um, while my father pursued his research. Ah. And um, my mother did not speak Spanish and, um, and felt uncomfortable having us out of the home. So actually, I was homeschooled um, for each of those years that we lived in Spain and did not learn Spanish, ah. although my father fluently and I heard it, you know, uh, sort of as connected with his work. So eventually I studied Spanish in high school in Florida. They didn't, at the time, they did not uh, teach languages until ninth grade. So I actually began formal study, although I'd heard it for so many years mm-hmm. in high school and eventually um, developed fluency in it through doing volunteer work in high school, um, translating documents for refugees who were fleeing Cuba um, to South Florida at the time and continuing to study and then beginning in law school to take time to live in um, different countries and volunteer in different countries where I could finally uh, gain a sort of a, a, not a fluency, but I'd say a a strong proficiency Mm -hmm. in Spanish. It's now one of my working languages. Wonderful. That's great. Victor, what about you? So I was born and raised in New York, uh, Long Island mostly, a little bit in the city. Uh, But... uh, Spanish was my first language. I was raised by my mother, who uh, immigrated from El Salvador, and uh, I I didn't actually um, I was not deemed proficient in English until I was about 11 years old uh, when I was in sixth grade, and I finally was eligible to leave my English as a second language classes. And I remember that mm-hmm. morning very clearly because I was finally allowed to stay in my uh, English speaking classrooms full time. <laughs> uh, but uh, basically, I've spoken Spanish as my first language since I was born. And 
And uh, I also, I always speak Spanish with my mother and my partner. But also I, after college, I lived abroad where I was able to uh, specifically live for a year in the Dominican Republic in Nicaragua, where the Spanish varies. It's very different compared to the mm-hmm. Spanish in El Salvador. Great. Well, thank you both. Uh, Beth, maybe you can tell our listeners, uh, what is the Farm Worker Legal Assistance Clinic and how did it come about? Legal education is professional education. Um, So, for example, like medical school, um, you'll have students who need to learn the doctrine. They need to learn the professional norms by sitting in what we call a podium class or reading books um, and taking tests. But it also is a setting where, like medicine, law students also need to learn in role. They have to learn by serving what we call live clients um, in legal education. And so since about the 1960s, law schools have actually been offering clinics, creating essentially small law offices that are contained inside the law school where students provide free legal services to low-income and subordinated communities under the supervision of faculty lawyers such as myself. Um, And so across America, you'll find just a plethora of different practice areas, different ways that students are contributing and um, providing legal support to the community. And here at Cornell, because we are a land-grant school, because we're located in a rural area, um, our law dean made a decision to start a clinic that would provide free legal services to farm workers and to farm worker advocates, farm worker movements. And so that's how I came to join the faculty about six years ago. I did a similar clinic in Pennsylvania for many years, and there aren't very many. Actually, Cornell's is the second. Wow. Um, It is is a theme that requires sort of geographic proximity to agriculture. And also, it requires a certain interest in rural access to justice on the part of the faculty, and that's not the case at many law schools. So it really is a unique initiative that Cornell decided to undertake um, And I've been very fortunate since we founded the clinic in 2015 to be able to work oftentimes in conjunction with the Cornell Farmworker Program, which is a a university-wide initiative um, that works with farmworkers, and also to work with just an amazing um, group of farmworker advocates and community organizers here in upstate that have been doing very exciting work um, involving our students in it, which has been wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is such important work too, and we really appreciate that this exists because this is such an important resource for everybody involved. Um, so, where we come in with the Language Resource Center is um, that there is this one credit co-requisite um, course that goes along with the clinic that's part of our Languages Across the Curriculum initiative. And so as part of that, we integrate language into disciplinary areas. So they're not really language courses per se, but they take the content matter and just students in that get to discuss the issues at hand in a specific target language. And so, Victor, that's where you come in. You've been teaching um, that language across the curriculum section for us. Can you talk a little bit more about what has been beneficial for you and maybe also your students teaching that section? Yes, uh, it's my pleasure. So I, with the support of Professor Lyon uh, and many of the other um, clinical faculty, uh, I've had the pleasure of, of, of la- this past year working with several uh, 2L students, 3L students, second year, third year law school students, 
who have some background in speaking Spanish, uh, but really want to improve their Spanish speaking abilities in the context of the legal work they want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So in addition to actually uh, improving their vocabulary, their pronunciation, I would also say one of the great benefits of this uh, opportunity for the students and for myself is to have these um, substantive conversations about the legal issues and uh, themes that we face as law school students, but eventually as lawyers down the road when working with uh, the people we represent in our clinics, whether it's the farm workers clinic, uh, any other clinic in the law school. So whether it's about uh, the issues that the people represent face in a day-to-day uh, a day-to-day experience or just what I look, what it means to like work with interpreters or what it means to work with somebody who was recently arrested, whether immigration proceedings or criminal proceedings. Yeah. Uh, these are conversations we're having in Spanish where it, it can be you know, a, a tough learning curve at the beginning that, that people really kind of um, kind of just take a deep dive and really appreciate the opportunity to have these like real conversations that we don't necessarily have answers to always, but we're engaging with each other uh, in a language mm-hmm. that we're also trying to uh, improve. Yeah, and, and you know, I think what fascinates me about these um, language across the curriculum courses, this is such an important opportunity for students. We hear from students time and time again that they love languages and they would love to take all the languages but simply don't have time. And so if we can make that connection with their disciplinary area, that's something that they have to be engaged in already anyway. But if we can do that in a different language and equip them with the language capability to actually apply that in their future careers, I think that's that's just so important. Um, Beth, do you have anything else to add about the the benefit or you know the role that these language co-requisite courses play? How how has like what have you seen um, as a result of these Spanish courses? Well, um, I really think they're a great bridge um, for us. In for example, just in my clinic where we are serving. Um, You know, almost all of the people that we're working with are Spanish as a first language or, an, you know, they speak an indigenous language, uh-huh. but Spanish is their second language. Um, and so I have a co-teacher in the clinic, Brianna Beltran, who her focus is on employment matters. So her students might be suing um, a farm that has um, fired someone in retaliation for asserting their rights or injured um has experienced trafficking, so more of a focus on labor and worker rights. And then my practice has more of a focus on deportation defense and immigration. Mm-hmm. But one thing that, that uh, sort of a theme that runs across all these practice areas and many others, as Victor mentioned, is the idea of language access to justice. It's a concept that we use in the law to talk about how does a government offer justice, you know, access to justice systems, whether it's, you know, civil litigation or the criminal justice system, or simply access to basic government services that are available, that are accessible as required by civil rights law to people who don't speak English as a first language. And so one of our roles as litigators, as advocates, is to ensure that people are able to access all of these services, um, you know, through the services, the legal, the language services that the government is required to provide. Um, And at the same time, we also think a lot about how to have 
a language accessible practice. So how is it that even though many of the students in the clinic, unlike Victor, are not bilingual, how are we ensuring that at any moment along the way, our clients are able to get support from us in the language that's comfortable for them? So that theme plays out. We spend a lot of time talking about it in class and people are attracted to the clinic who either speak Spanish fluently or they studied it for a while. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, the story you hear from Americans is they know that Spanish is very important. It's very important in our society, but our government has chosen to maintain a monolingual education system, um, what we call a, you know, a, a sort of a quick um a quick exit system where people who come into American education actually lose their first language very quickly. Yeah. And being encouraged to continue in it and maintain that ability, which is, you know, good for us as a society and would be good for us, frankly, as an economy as well. So you find many people who either they spoke Spanish as their first language, but they never got the chance to develop it in school because of the way um, America works or they actually studied it for a little while in high school, sort of the way I had. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have the time or the opportunity in college or later to actually develop it. And so you find students in both categories that will come into the clinic. And so for them to have a chance to develop, whether it's, you know, just sitting with Victor and learning, you know, trying to get better at conversation, mm -hmm. you know, he's encouraging and bringing students like that along. And then as a result, we have someone with a law degree with experience practicing, and also who's feeling more encouraged in their Spanish. So we've helped to develop more of a bilingual bar. Or he's working with students who, you know, have not had the chance to develop their Spanish in a professional setting. And yeah. so they develop more of a legal domain um, vocabulary, or, you know, just the chance to spend a little time. Law school is so stressful. And huh. just the chance to spend a little time in a language that is refreshing for them. Um, so the service that he has been offering and, you know, this idea of the FLAC has really been exciting, I think, and important for our work. Wonderful. Where can our listeners learn more about the important work that the two of you are doing? The Farmworker Legal Assistance Clinic has a website at the law school, and we're delighted for you to take a look. Um, but also, you're always welcome to reach out to any of us in the clinic. Um, we get inquiries a lot from different students in different departments, whether they're thinking about going to law school or they care about the rights of immigrants or they care about having a more just agricultural system. Um, and we always enjoy talking with them. Sometimes they'll come and volunteer or work with us. And of course, students who are bilingual, um, we will hire you on the spot to work with us as interpreters. <laughs> and <lawyers. laughs> Wonderful. Before we sign off, we would like to ask both of you to share your favorite word in a language that you speak, love, want to learn, are learning. What are those words? Victor, what is yours? Oh, this is such a great question. I, I would say uh, using the the, uh, the version vos instead of tu or usted. I grew up speaking, it's a little bit more informal, uh, particular to El Salvador, Argentina, and I'm sure a few other countries, but I think it's, I just love referring to people as, as I can speak in Spanish in the voice form, because it's more, it's more warm, it's warmer and, and more personable. Yeah. Nice. Huh? Beth, what about you? First, I just have to say, I love vosotros both as well. I, you know, studying in Spain, of course, it's used there as well, and I've always missed that, that uh, you know, coming back into the Americas and working, I spent a lot of time working in Peru and in Mexico, and you just didn't see that as much. So I totally 
endorse that one. Um, and for me, um, I think there's a word that I learned as a kid, ojalá, which in Spanish means only or, you know, I hope hopefully or it could be so. And we don't, I think, have an exact word in English that means that. And I've always thought it was just a very, um, it's a very happy way to dwell on a good possibility. So I spend a lot of time talking with people who are, you know, living in very difficult circumstances. They're undocumented. They're doing dirty, difficult, and dangerous work in our society for very little pay. Um, and still they're vilified um, in our society. And so to talk with someone who's in those circumstances and to hear them say, oh, hala, um, you know, this could be something that happens in my future. It's just very moving for me. So that's an important word. Nice. Well, Beth, Victor, thank you so much for speaking of language with us. Thank you. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Great program. Next week, we welcome Daniel Gallagher to our podcast. Dan is Ralph and Jean Kander's senior lecturer in Latin at Cornell, and he is using the classroom to bring this ancient language to life. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.